from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Osmar Ramos Caballero. Osmar is African-Cuban and came to the United States when he was 11 years old. In 1999, his family settled in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where they ran into the Baha'i faith. Osmar became a Baha'i after his family moved to the Midwest, and he stayed behind to attend Holyoke Community College. I started the interview by asking Osmar to describe life back in Cuba. I grew up in Cuba, um, the capital of Havana. That's where I was born. Growing up there was, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. It was really fun. I, I remember that I uh, used to do my homework and then stay at the house, but then my grandmother would always, always let me leave the house so I could uh, play with my friends in the park. I never understood why, <laughs> even though she's very strict and everything, but she just let me let me play. I don't know, I had a lot of adventures every single time I I was in the streets with my friends because we we run we ran from one park to another park and another park and you know, just little adventures that kids have. It was it was fun. It was fun though. So you had a lot of friends? Yeah, yeah, I had a lot of friends, which most of them, of course, went to the same school as I was in uh, elementary school. And then um, I think one day one of them uh, moved to another city, and I think our little, I don't know, musketeer group just kind of broke down. <laughs> but no, we, we kept in touch after that. And what was school like? School was um, is very different. It's very different from here in the United States. I, I noticed uh, some of the differences from here and, and in Cuba, for example, that uh, in Cuba we we start advanced algebra, but, but very very early. I got algebra until until I came here in the United States, in and I got them in high school, but with things that I already I already learned from middle school or even elementary school, they give us a lot of hard hard math, some uh, physics, and I think, the, the, of course, the grading students are, is, are very, is very different than here. We don't, we don't put um, letters for grading, like ABC. Um, over there, it's either 100 or not 100. It's, it's very hard because you have to memorize everything. That means that um, there are no multiple choices over there in Cuba. They give you, of course, the 40 or 50 questions in which they are written, and you you have to write the answer. You can't um, choose any letter at all. 
yeah, everything has to be memorized, everything has to be studied, and it's hard. It's hard. It's very strict, very strict. And strict in what way? And strict because, um, I don't know, every every topic that we have in Cuba, you have to memorize it, and then you have to do um, the test and pass it. If you don't pass it, then you're going to have to try to do it again. Now, the strict part uh, for me is that in even even if in elementary school, if you don't pass a grade, you stay there until you pass it again. I remember that everybody in my school, they were, <laughs> we were always terrified about that. So everybody uh, studied and studied and studied because nobody wants to stay back uh, at that same grade. I don't know. I thought it was uh, very strict. In here, I don't, I don't see it as much. I just see it that, um, oh, if you failed, then you can take it again. And if you failed, well, I don't know. <laughs> so what was religious life like for you growing up in Havana? Uh, in Cuba, we have um, the religion called Santeria. And it's a uh, Yoruba-based. It's, it's part of a, it's a traditional tradition um, of uh, African descendants, which was brought by the slaves when the Spanish went to Africa and took some slaves. So the slaves brought with them this religion from Africa, uh, Nigeria to be exact, and Angola. This religion has uh, many gods, by which all these gods worship God itself. It's kind of like saying that God has this warriors or something like that, and these warriors or, or, or supervisors, they would just uh, look upon us and help us. Uh, for example, um, that we have a God for our path in our lives, in which we have to know very well uh, what to choose. If you choose to um, go with this crowd, then you have to know very well who they are before you get to that crowd. If you choose the other crowd, then you do have to do the same. But at the same, but the the main thing is that it's your choice, and yet he's the the God to make you realize which choice are you supposed to make. There is a goddess of water, Yemaya. Her name is. She has to do with water, only in the oceans and the beauty. So every single morning when you when uh, people take a shower or something like that. It's as if she was already, she's just already there because she's water. She's water. She's everywhere. And there are other other gods for the earth, what other for uh, for war, for peace. Oh, like I said, all these gods, they just worship God itself, which is really interesting. I don't know. I, I grew up with it, and I thought it was cool. It was okay. Right. There, was, there was like one thing that I didn't like as much. <laughs> What's that? Well, of course, in, in all these gods, of course, I understand that it's my religion comes from Cuba, therefore it has African descendants. Um, therefore, you have to sacrifice a live chicken in order to um, clean your anxieties out outside of your body. Amazingly, um, I, I've been doing that for years, and, and it has worked so far. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, that's what uh, that's what you have to do. Sometimes you have to sacrifice uh, a chicken or an animal, which is a gift, a food, a gift to these gods, and uh, they would greatly appreciate it with 
this animal plus candy and a little bit of rum, and they would and we would just us as facilitators, uh, we would uh, sing to them in um, the old African language to the gods. Grab a um, a cigar, puff the smoke, and just uh, telling them, asking them, you know, can we can we clean ourselves of the body, you know, um, stress, anything that you worry about, anything that that happened that it was very bad, you just want to take it out from your mind and be positive, try to go on with your life, don't do it again, stuff like that, you know, that would just try to make your life a little better. And do you remember any of these songs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember some. I sing it, I sing it sometimes. Do you want to sing one for us? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, here it is. Maraswayo Mama Kenya Obdarare Iyawo Marakeswayo Mama Kenya Obdara Eiyawo Baraswayo Mama Kenya Obdara Eiyawo Marakeswayo Mama Kenya Obdara Eiyawo And there are others and others and others. <laughs> it's very nice. Well, sometimes I keep in touch with my parents sometimes because they, they're in Indiana and they call me sometimes and mm-hmm. uh, my mom always tell me to sing those songs. If I get a little, Anxious. if I get sad or yeah. stressed or depressed or whatever, you know, when, when I need the time to sing it, I'll sing it. That's what I do. I, I sing it sometimes and it helps. I find it interesting that in Cuba, the original African religion was able to flourish through slavery, whereas in the States, the African religions were supplanted by Christianity. Yeah, it's really true. And you know what? I forgot to tell you that there's a population of Christianity in Cuba also, mm-hmm. but it's a small amount. I think most of them are Catholics. But the Yoruba is still, uh, the Santeria is still, is still in place as, a, as one, of the, one of the strong religions in Cuba. And yeah, that is, that is true. I, I, I noticed that uh, when I came here at the same time that um, African Americans, I think, uh, I would say that they, they adapt to Christianity as, and they would yeah. uh, have it as their religion. It was probably more than adaptation, but suppression of their original religion and forced that's true, that's true. acceptance of the yes. white religion. Yes, I agree. So I find it interesting that in Cuba, the slave owners allowed the uh, slaves to continue to practice their native religion. I think there was a, a, an old story in Cuba about, if I'm remembering history, history class in Cuba, that um, I think the slave, the slave owners in, in Cuba, which of course they, they were from Spain, they would, of course, pressure the slaves to work, and then after work, they would put the slaves into a place where they had to sleep and, and eat. But the, the interesting thing is that um, in that story, in that, in that little scale of them staying at that place, they start dancing, and they start bringing music, 
and they don't have drums, but they have, I think, the walls to make beats in order to, I think, for them to stay alive or to remind them of home. I know you're a young man. When was it that you actually left Cuba? Um, I left Cuba when I was 11 years old, 1997. And what were the circumstances that had you leave Cuba? In that time, Cuba had a uh, kind of like a special period. Of course, we, we have a, um, a very different system, of course, um, getting food and everything, which here in the United States you have supermarkets and people can go and just grab whatever they need, buy it, and go. In Cuba, in that time, we, we had this system which was um, you have a little notebook, and this little notebook, uh, they had a date, a specific date. In those dates, you had to go down and take for free the milk, the bread, and something else I can't remember. I think it was the eggs or something like that. And you, just, and you will mark it at that little notebook. The rest of it you had to pay. But there, there were people who, who came. They, they passed to your house or to your apartment, and they would ask you if, if you wanted to buy this food or that food. In those times, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And I think it was tough um, economically because I think they didn't, we didn't, of course, we didn't have any money, um, not a lot of money, which is weird because we have jobs and yet the economy was down. That's how it was before. Right now, um, I get in touch with my aunts and my grandmother from, from Cuba, and they told me that right now the system has changed so much. But it has changed to a system where, where I see it here, of course, uh, in the United States, which is they have down, down there now markets or supermarkets where people will go there, buy their food, buy it, and, and go home. The difference is that over there, it's, it's kind of uh, expensive, a little expensive. What you're hearing from your aunts is that the economy is migrating more toward capitalism than before? She, she's been telling me that um, there are some people in Cuba who um, uh, somehow I think they, the economy is rising up and somehow that uh, people are having, I don't know, a little bit more stuff than before. Of course, the Cubans have their complaints that their life is difficult. Therefore, they decide to try to migrate to other countries and um, start working, win some money. The usual routine, you know, you just migrate to another country, work, have some money for yourself. At the same time, give some money to your family down there in Cuba so they can be okay. I think that's the system right now. So continue your story about emigrating from Cuba. Oh, yeah. When I was nine years old, my mom wanted to come to the United States because she wanted, to, she wanted to work here. Over there in Cuba, she was an English teacher and a translator, a professional translator for English and Spanish. And then, of course, she, she wanted to come here for, to, to start working and to see if she can do something more professionally and build, build her studies up. Of course, she decided to go to the Cuban embassy to get a uh, visa. It was tough. I, I remember a little bit, but it was tough because I think my mom had to, she had to sign a lot of papers, a lot of this, a lot of that. 
And then, of course, it, and that wasn't it. That was just half of it. Uh, one year. The next year was the, Eng- the, the, the American embassy, which, of course, they gave a lot of, a lot of papers. It was difficult. It was mm. difficult. But after two years, they gave us the visa. We came by plane. We bought the, the plane ticket. We came here. I think we arrived to Florida first. Then we took another plane to come to Boston. And we stayed in. We stayed there for a year or two. Then in '99, we we moved here because my mom wanted to do um, wanted to go to UMass and do her doctor's degree in Spanish and Caribbean literature. She already got it. She just got it. It's interesting. She was able to get a visa when so many people seemed trapped in Cuba and have to try to go to Florida by boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing that, of course, they're frustrated. That's that's frustration. And the thing is that they don't want to wait for two years or maybe more so they can get a visa. And, of course, they, 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 will, they will always go the easier way, which, of course, uh, you have to get a truck from somewhere. Someone will have a truck that, is, that, is, that nobody needs, uh, will take the tires, you need wood as well, but with those tires, you have to make them bigger and wider so you can go there, so you can get in there and some pe- and, and other people. And then you just need um, supplies, food, etc. And you're on your way because you have a, we have a um, the seas right there, so everybody can go down there, get the bo- their boats and go to uh, Florida from there. Now, once you came to Western Massachusetts, why don't you tell us the story of how you ran into the Baha'i faith? In, uh, in 1999, we came here in Holyoke, Massachusetts. I went to middle school, but then in 2000, we moved to, to Spain for a year, and then we came back. When we came back, I think that summer of 2001 or 2002, that's when my parents got invited, somehow, I don't know who invited them, uh, got invited to David and Elizabeth's wedding. That's David and Elizabeth Gowler, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember me going there, but I, but I went there, as my parents would, they, they said to me. And I think the story goes that Elizabeth and David were talking to my parents about the Baha'i faith, and they were, I think they asked them to go to a devotional, one of the, one of the Fridays uh, devotionals that the Ruhi, uh, at the Ruhi's house, which this is, they always have. So the Ruhi family is a family, Baha'i family, that live in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and every Friday evening they have a Baha'i devotional meeting. Yeah, and I think we went there that first Friday, and of course we didn't know anybody except David and Elizabeth. And I think that's, that, I think that's where I, I met Anise. Anise um, being the Ruhi's son that was same age, same age as you, right? He's uh, 17 right now. Oh, okay. And how old and are you? Was? He, oh, okay. After, after that experience, after that devotional, which we just, that we just prayed, and then after pray after prayers, if you want to say more prayers, then 
you are very welcome to do so. And after prayers, we have a discussion about the Baha'i faith, and then we have, and then after that discussion, we we have, we can socialize. In my experience, as as a teenager uh, here in the United States, I I never experienced that. I I have I have experienced that on well, of course, in in other countries that I, that I've been, but not in the United States because it it's kind of being a teenager here is it's kind of hard. In what way? Or in a way that um that I noticed that uh, here in the United States, the teenagers have to know which group you have to belong to, where do you fit in, basically, which I, I, I never cared, so I, I, did, I did my thing. <laughs> but at the same time, but I noticed, I noticed that um, some, of, some of my friends, they, they had a really hard time in, in my age as a 13 or 14-year-old trying to be friends with other people and... You know, the other people would just reject them only because they study a lot. That doesn't make sense. Just because that person study, studies a lot doesn't mean that, you know, that person is uh, could be cool or whatever they think they are. But still, I, in, this, in this devotional, I felt that I belonged somewhere. And then after that devotional, we went to more devotionals, more devotionals, and uh, we got we got into it. We got into it a lot every Friday, and then after that we went to um, other activities of uh, the Baha'i faith, in which uh, we we had um, activities that I I was involved in with other teenagers. I thought it was a really really good experience. After that, in 2002, me and my family went back to Spain again came back in 2004, I was a senior, and back then I was a senior in high school, and I graduated, luckily I graduated because I, I passed the MCAS, but not, but not by um, just a couple of points, because when I came back from Spain, because I, I took the MCAS when I was in 10th grade, because I did junior, junior year, I did it in, um, in Spain, but when I came back, they gave me the results, and they told me that... Um, that I didn't pass the MCAS by one point. And I couldn't appeal it, of course, because I wasn't here the full four years, as you would say, in high school. Of course, I, I studied and studied and studied. It was, it was the year that right after school, I didn't play any sports. Soccer is my favorite sport, mm. and I, I didn't even play it. Oh, um, that, that must have year. been hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, of course, I, I knew what I was supposed to do, so I... I, I, I dedicated myself to it, to learn more English, to understand more, more um, algebra and some math that, um, that, of course, were in the questions. And then I got another shot of the exam, and uh, I passed it, luckily. <laughs> right after that, that 2004, I went back again to Europe, first to Portugal, then to Spain, and now we're back. Uh, we came back last summer. In last summer, it was my first time to go door-to-door teaching with Anis and other members of the Baha'i Faith, which Anis told me to, he asked me to go. And I said, yeah, sure, I would, I would gladly go. So, Asmar, at this point, you hadn't become a Baha'i? Yes, I wasn't a Baha'i. I wasn't a Baha'i yet. And then, of course, I, I went this door-to-door teaching with other people, we went to, I think it was, yes, uh, Springfield to knock on the door 
to people and explain to them about the Baha'i faith. I remember it very well because it was very funny. My partner, she was the one who was doing the presentation, but then I was the one who was reading the quotes of uh, Baha'u'llah and Abdu Baha because that was the only thing I could do. I didn't know any any history about it until now. Then when we came back after that, I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting experience. I thought it was really great. And then uh, <laughs> right before everybody wanted to go home and wrap everything up, I said, "Hey guys, can I have one of these cards? One of these little cards?" And and they said, "Oh yeah, sure. Just you know, try to give it to." You whoever needs it, to, to your friends or something like that. Oh, no, no, no. And I said, oh, no, it's for me because I wanted to declare. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they started laughing. And I said, oh, really? Oh, wow. And they, they asked me, well, why now? After so many years, why now? And I said, well, I, I, I felt it. I, I felt that it was the right time. I didn't declare then years ago because I wanted to know more. The more the more I went to the activities, the more I liked it, and more and and it got it built it even more and more and more and more, and the experience is always great. I, I like that. I like that a lot. So then that summer I declared, and now I'm a Baha'i, just a year old, just a cub. I'm just a cub. <laughs> so Osmar, you said that going door to door teaching was great. Can you tell me what was great about it? It was great knocking on the door, try to teach people who we are, what, what the, what's the Baha'i faith is all about, and just to teach them. I think I thought it was a very inter- interesting and compelling experience because, to tell the truth, I, I noticed, I remember uh, many years ago that there were, I think, some Christian high school kids that would knock on, on, on our door here. They were asked, if we believed in God and stuff like that, and then they would start talking about Jesus Christ, the presentation, and and then, of course, they, the last thing they asked us was if we believed in God. And that was, <laughs> from, from my parents, was, uh, of course, it was always a difficult answer. <laughs> well, why was it difficult for your parents to answer? Of course, I, I know because of uh, her santeria. Yeah, she, she believes in God. But at the same time, she she loves her her religion. Uh. But the the thing the thing was that these kids tried to to convince my mom to turn to Christianity, which was interesting to to watch because they kept on going. They tried, they tried, they tried. Why why won't you uh, be part of us? Um, our religion is the, you know the truth. It was really interesting to to see them um, talk like that. When I compared that to the Baha'i door-to-door teaching, which is just knock on the door, say hello, who we are, and the, of course the people will will always say, um, "Oh no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm sorry, I have my own religion." And we say, "Of course, we understand. That that's totally fine. You know, there is no problem at all with that. We just want to teach you. We don't want to make you change your religion. We just want to teach you who we are." That is all. And I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful. I mm-hmm. thought that was beautiful. Now, did your mother ever become a Baha'i? No. But the funny th- the thing is that she, she loves it, though. She loves it. And My I- parents love the Baha'i concept. I remember when I told them that I became a Baha'i, which was interesting. I 
I was nervous, and I didn't know what they were what they were going to answer when I told them that I became a Baha'i. First of all, my mom was yelling of happiness. Oh, really? Saying, oh, wow, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, that, I'm so glad for you, Osmar. You know, you became a Baha'i. Oh, that is so great. Oh, you're gonna, you'll be fine. That, that's what she said. Mm. I remember. She, you'll be totally fine. And I, and I was like, wow, thank you. <laughs> 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 and so did my dad. My dad was, oh, he was happy. He was mm. ecstatic. And the only the only one who started joking about it was my little brother, <laughs> and he's and he's still asking me today, you know, that I was my why did you become a Baha'i? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh guy, come on, you know, seriously. And then he's like, okay, okay, I was just joking. Mm-hmm. No, but really, why did you become a Baha'i? <laughs> and he kept asking and asking, but no, he's really happy. He's really happy about it too. So your your mother didn't feel like you were losing your heritage or your no, religion of no, your I family didn't. or anything yeah, not like at that. All. Not at all. Not at all. My mom, she told me that she she fe- she felt that it was really that it was really good for me to to become a Baha'i, not only because of the Baha'i faith, but also my, my mom thought that that this is where I belong, and she said that that's where that's where you want to be. Then that's then that's great. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I I of course I told her that I'm not going to forget anything about my old religion. I'm still gonna I'm still gonna pray by singing in African, but at the same time, I'm going to go to the, um, the uh, Baha'i writings, pray and do, read some prayers um, almost every day. That's it. I'm just going to balance the two of them, mm-hmm. which I think is really good. So what are you doing now, Osmar? Right now, I'm a senior at a Holy Community College. I'm an actor. I'll be graduating this semester. I assume you want to pursue acting. What are your plans in that regard after you graduate? After I graduate, I thought I could um, I could go to California, have my experience out there at the um, filming industry. But before that, when I graduate, I wanted to. I also wanted to stay here a little bit in the Western Mass area because I know some. There are some teachers who have their own theater company. And they know me, so I can audition for it and um, become part of the of the company, act in it, and at the same time, it will be good for, of course, for my resume. And then I would just go from here to California to start looking for auditions and uh, a place where I could uh, where I could live and um, try to try to catch my dream as right. much as I can. Now, when did you discover that you enjoyed acting and you wanted to make it a career? I discovered acting when I was a little kid, uh, when I was in Cuba. When, uh, in Cuba, of course, I didn't have um, uh, many toys. I think I got two or three toys when I was a little kid. So toys got me occupied, but not a lot. So I tried to make my own entertainment somehow, which was to look at some movies. Sometimes my grandmother, <laughs> me and my grandmother would sit down in front of the TV and watch um, soap operas, some, some soap operas from Cuba, other soap operas from Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, and I would just repeat what the actors would say on TV. And every single time I repeated it, I wanted to, do, I wanted to mimic their voice just the way they were. So I, I tried to 
act myself out as a little kid. But it, inter- interestingly, I after when I came here, I I stopped stopped doing those things. The only the only thing that that kept interested in it was for me to watch movies. And then I got into the, a habit of uh, having a notebook every single time I watch a movie and just look at the actor's eyes, gestures, body position, body language. How can they be very articulate when they talk? And I, I would just write as notes to myself. And then I would come back home in the bathroom looking at myself in the mirror and try to practice every day this kind of stuff. And uh, I would get it sometimes. Sometimes I wouldn't. And then when I went, when I started ACC, I had a different major, which was uh, graphic design. But then I discovered theater. And then I said, "Wow, well, that's going to be my opportunities right there." So I'm going to take it. Mm-hmm. So I switched majors and I started acting for ACC for a year or two. And I have a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun. I discover something new all the time. And you're also an artist, then? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've been. Uh, I draw Japanese animation, or anime, as some people say. I like to create my own characters. I I write my own stories. How is it going to be? Who they are? Where they come from? How old are they? What's the relationship between this character with the other? And stuff like that. I but I do it right now as a hobby. But I'm still interested in. And try to try to do it as a as a career, but still, uh, acting is is my main my main focus right now. And you're also in a band. Uh yes, yes, so- I'm in a band with um, Anis Ruhi, Mon, and Metallica Banda. But he's not here. He's he's the saxophone player. He's in the year service right now in Haifa. Haifa is he'll be back in the spring or in the summer. Anis. He's the um, guitar player and uh, vocal singer. Uh, Mon is the drummer, and I am and I'm the singer. So me and Anis, we we harmonize when we sing, almost all the time. I love it. I love it. I having a band. It's it's really great. It's it's an experience. So I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. And what's the name of the band? Our name is called uh, Down to Earth. Which, of course, oh my God, we're going to play at, at Nebi this Saturday. You're referring to Nebi Fest, which is the Northeast Baha'i Youth Conference. Yeah. Baha'i youth from all over New England come to, is yeah. it in Stanford, Connecticut this year? Yes, Stanford, Connecticut. That's and where it's going to be. I guess you'll, your band will be performing there. Yes, 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 it will be. That's great. Osmar, you, you have a number of talents ranging from music to art to writing because you write stories with your animation. That's quite a set of talents. I, I hope you will continue to invest time in all of them. Thank you. Yes, I will. I will. I was wondering if you have another song you would like to sing for us before we close. Um, sure, sure. Okay. This song, I... Um, it's part of the band Down to Earth, but um, it's in Spanish because I, I wrote it. Then when I when I showed to the to the band, they they loved it, and and of course they they got their own their little spice in there. So I thought it was cool. The song is called If You're Not There. In Spanish, it will be Y Tú No Estás, okay. and it goes like this. 
corriendo para entrar, una flor se marchitó y solo pienso en ti y tú no estás, adiós mi corazón, ya no hay ningún rencor, si quieres ser así. Y tú no estás, yo te quiero para mí, lo que quieres es sufrir, y con mi alma gritaré. Y tú no estás, hasta luego se acabó, déjame con el dolor, si es preciso moriré. Y tú no estás, estás dentro de mí, estoy tan loco, sí, loco para ti. Y tú no estás, ayúdame por Dios, yo no aguanto más. Te canto esta canción y tú no estás, voy llorando por la calle, desesperado buscándote y ni huellas dejaste y tú no estás. Yo te entiendo y tú me entiendes mal, acaba el tiempo, vete ya. La puerta se cerró y tú no estás, un amor empezó, después se murió, también murieron los dos y tú no estás, memorias en la mente. Ya sal de mi frente, señoras y señores, ella no está. And that's it. That's nice. Very nice, Osmar. Thank you. So thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you very much. <laughs> Glad to share it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Osmar Ramos Caballero, a Baha'i youth who emigrated from Cuba and is an aspiring actor, graphic designer, and a wonderful singer. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Everybody get a grip. Don't let them see you like this. I say I'm ashamed of mankind. But I walk a thin line, so I slip. If something's in the way, yeah, I'm known to trip. It's more than I can take. All eyes on me, and it's more than I can fake. But at the end of the day, man, all that I can say is my prayers to the most great when I'm down for the count. In it too deep when I live day to day. Start to lose sleep when I don't go to class. When I don't call fam back. How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know, God, I don't know if I am even worthy of your grace anymore. I'm waiting for a sign. But everything is a sign, in reality the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire, when I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils Make of my prayer a fire, a fire, kindle in my veins A fire, a fire, my God, my adored one, my king, my desire I know that God gave each a purpose, but we all gotta search way beneath the surface to find it. Like trying to unearth a diamond that always appears with the most perfect timing. So I start reading to find meaning, and I see there is still something I am not seeing. In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music, in the very air that I'm breathing. It's the reason I feel forced to write. I recognize it inside me, that source of light, showing me that there is so much more to life. Arming me with the fire because I got wars to fight. I think about the breakers of the dawn and how they stood firm when the guns were drawn. On the front lines, far from pawns, kings in their own right. They're the ones who I call upon whenever I lose faith. I read the story of my name and realize it's never too late to believe. And so shall my powers be. I believed and he made a man out of me. I feel it in my veins, the fire. When I cry out his name, oh my God, make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire, kindle in my veins, a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Yeah. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.